Welcome to TSG Talk. TSG Talk aims to contribute positively towards the care of an injured casualty or vulnerable patient. If your goal is to maximise your input for the people you care for, then TSG Talk is for you. Our podcast will interview colleagues who are at the cutting edge of their professions. Often they're involved in creating solutions for areas that historically have proven difficult or have a wealth of experience in a particular complex response. Each podcast will provide unique, engaging content. At TSG Associates, we will always strive to ensure our solutions are ahead of the curve and positively impact on the quest for prioritising survival and minimising suffering. We believe TSG Talk will complement our vision and provide a platform to enhance your response. It is my pleasure to now pass you across to our host, Senior Partner at TSG, Colin Smart. Good evening and welcome to the latest edition of our podcast, TSG Talk, implementing a medical disaster plan for remote industry. Delivering optimal care will always be the prime objective in our quest to maximise survival and minimise suffering. The objective does not change when we work remotely and are faced with multiple casualties. But how can we achieve this with these two complex factors to overcome? To discuss this subject tonight, we are privileged to talk with Dr. Rubina McCann. So good evening, Rubina. Good to see you. How are you today? How are you today? Well, thanks, Colin. And you? Yes, very good. Thanks. And um, thank you very much for agreeing to come on TSG Talk. I really, really appreciate your time today. Yeah, my pleasure. Great, fantastic. Just, uh, Rubina, before we start, um, could you just give our listeners a little bit of information about your, your, your own background in medicine and really how you've become involved in sort of remote area medicine and then a little bit about how you've got into the multiple casualty planning side of life? Yeah, for sure. Well, you may guess from my accent, I'm Australian, Australian born and trained. Uh, and I was a medical practitioner who had a, a scholarship to go remote. So um, as soon as I graduated and did my intern year, I went out quite remote uh, to a place called Mount Isa, which is about uh, an 18 hour drive from our capital, state capital, not uh, national capital city, and 12 hours to the nearest uh, sort of tertiary hospital. So Australia is a large place with not many people. Um, so very early on, I was involved in remote clinical care. Um, I also went just as a practitioner out to a lot of islands where I was the only doctor there. And we dealt with all sorts of trauma, particularly motor vehicle accident. We would sometimes see um, unexpected uh, other accidents and, and domestic violence as well. Um, and then um, I, I, as I sort of matured, I started becoming an emergency department head of that town in Mount Isa. And we were the retrieval base for a lot of the very, very remote areas. We were like the first port of call. So we would um, see some quite big accidents. We had a lot of mines around us. Uh, it's inland, so not offshore oil and gas, but we dealt with, a, you know, mine uh, accidents, etc., as well as, again, a lot of motor vehicle type issues where sometimes up to six, eight people would be injured all at once. Um, and through that, I, I did the sort of fairly standard uh, clinical skills training, like uh, pre-hospital trauma life support. Uh, we call it EMST in Australia. It's ATLS, the rest of the world, where I did that. And then I repeated that. And I actually became a trainer in that. I was one of the teachers for EMST. Um, and through various times, both in that part of Queensland, and then I went and did emergency medicine as a training um, specialist, uh, I did quite a few mass casualty trainings. So simulated where we would say, okay, let's, uh, what would we do if say a plane went down, 
what are our services, how would we coordinate with the rest of the emergency services. Uh, the example in Perth was a, uh, a bomb, that we, the scenario, there was not really a bomb. And, um, and again, I worked rural and remote in a place called Newman in, in West Australia, and we did a simulated just car rollover. So that's sort of where I started learning about uh, mass casualty and certainly how it's just a completely different mindset to the care of the individual person. So if you've got one very severely injured person, it's all resources go there. Um, and yeah, it's not through experience, you realise it's quite a different approach that you have to do with mass casualty. Um, apart from the car accidents, you know, there wasn't anything really big in Australia, but then I went and worked and lived in Ghana. And um, I was actually assisting in a sort of a hospital there. I was in more of an administrative sort of structural kind of role, but we actually had a, a bus rollover and we had 24 injured people who all came in at once, one who'd passed. So that was probably my real experience, I'd say, in the raw, in a limited facility um, with 24 very, you know, well, injured people that we had to sort through. Um, and that's when I realised, yeah, you've really got to be organised um, in, in that scenario. Mass casualty planning just wasn't part of the, the mindset at that time. Um, but from that instance, we uh, implemented a plan, um, set everything up from it. And now in my current role where I support an offshore oil and gas company, I've partnered with TSG um, because, you know, we, we believe there's a really excellent um, triage system. Uh, it's all very well set up and we have worked together to implement that globally, not only as a training, but to embed that sustainably in our system. So we keep our skills up to date and really fresh. Well, that's uh, that, that's quite an extensive background you've got there, Rubina. And, uh, and it's interesting you're saying it, you, the... The experience you go starts, it doesn't always have to be the mass casualty, doesn't it? It's interesting. I think everyone you talk to who works slightly remote talk about the motor vehicle incident being being the sort of the bread and butter of multiple casualty care. And probably the thing we come across most of, I think, um, where, when multiple casualties are involved, all the way up to, as I say, working as a, a, as a, as a doctor for a, a remote industry, uh, provider uh, and then putting all the plans in place so that really is quite an experience and uh, as I say dealing with 24 injured people in a, in a remote second third world country must have been very interesting so a lot a lot to learn. Yes definitely and I, and I think it did show that organization and planning is so key there was so much energy a lot of actually other health professionals they're all trying to do it but none of which had had a mass casualty training approach and so it was incredibly chaotic and um yeah that's that's the real benefit i see with having a system in place and people who are trained now limiting the chaos i'm not going to say it's not chaotic but you yeah. can limit the chaos <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that so so just with that i mean obviously we've talked about um the couple of institutes you've been involved in you know dealing with the v vehicle accidents at a large bus rollover. With, with your sort of wider experience in, in remote industry, are, are there any other areas you think colleagues should be thinking about to, to prepare for? And maybe are there any dynamics they should be thinking about what they have to prepare for as well when, when they're thinking about these events? Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, I think the risks are very tailored to the environment in which you're in. And when I reflect back on my earlier life, when I was a remote doctor in a town, but we had a lot of minds around us, to be honest, in re reflection, I don't think we had necessarily accounted for what could come our way because they were surrounding. From a more particular, if you're, say, a, a dedicated industry medic, I mean, you're going to be coming into a particular environment. 
Um, for us, um, oil and gas, there are some very well-recognised and discussed major accident hazards. I think nearly everyone is very aware of the Deepwater Horizon slash Macondo Field um, incident and what happened there. Um, so, I mean, but that is not the only thing that can happen. So the oil and gas type um, major accident hazards are recognised as fire, explosion, or release of gas. So um, hydrogen sulfide can come up out of the well and can just not render people unconscious if they're not removed can lead to death. Um, any event that leads to a major damage or structural failure, now we would hope for not that, but I mean, there are things like, you know, a boat gets off course and whacks into the side of a rig or um, something else or someone, you know, misuses a crane and takes something out and we get a structural problem that can obviously injure a lot of people all at once. Uh, collision of a helicopter is a big one. So, um, you know, helicopters do come in and out to our remote locations, sometimes in quite adverse weather. So there is always the risk uh, that they may have have a helicopter down situation and or ditch into the sea and you've got to retrieve people out of the ocean uh, close to the rig. Um, and the other big one that we recognise is the failure of life support systems for diving operations. So they're the oil and gas ones, but I think um, other things that people have to consider is that if you are working in a, say, developing nation, um, onshore, you may have things like terrorism attacks, you may have to consider things like civil unrest, um, you know, things around the site where people are injured and they may come in for assistance. Um, and then you've just got the good old environmental factors. So, you know, we run operations in some pretty austere parts of the world. So in Saudi Arabia, um, in the middle of summer, it can be 50 degrees Celsius on the deck. I can't do the translations for those who work in Fahrenheit, but that's very hot. Um, equally, in Norway, in the midst of winter, you know, it can be an ice and snowstorm and well below zero. Um, in the US, um, where in the US Gulf, the hurricanes come through on a regular basis throughout that season. And, you know, just recently up into Canada uh, as well. Um, and, you know, good old UK North Sea, where I know you've had experience, um, sometimes it's just fog. You know, you've, you've got, it's not that the weather is severe, but there's a heavy, dense fog and it makes visibility, uh, visibility very difficult. And it may also mean that the um, rescue choppers, et cetera, have difficulty coming to you. Yeah, and that, that's definitely something I've come across where you, you literally cannot get, you've got yourself hopefully as organised as possible to get people moved, but the, 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 there is no transport coming. And, and that, yeah. that, that certainly is an interesting dynamic where your evacuation is just stalled because of often environmental factors, which, which I definitely think is the dynamic people should think about. If, if suddenly my transport can't come, what will I do? I think that has yeah. to be a, has to be a consideration. No, that, I think those those are excellent excellent points. No, that's uh, that, that 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 makes an, an awful lot of sense. And I suppose what you're what I'm getting from that is everywhere you go, the, the risk will be different. Um, and I think probably one of the things we we would encourage colleagues to look at when they're working remote is to do a really good risk assessment of what may cause multiple casualties. Um, I think that that's probably the, the, the key to, to getting started, I would think. What what is what I suppose what is the most likely thing to cause most multiple casualties? I think we'll always look there'll always be the risk of the large disaster, but I often yeah. I've always found with my risk assessments it's sometimes smaller things like five or six people injured on, on a drill rig or as you said before six people injured on a vehicle accident it can often be the small non-catastrophic events that actually can give you outnumber you quite quickly and found instead of the catastrophic which may be a once in a lifetime event would, would, would you agree yeah. with that with that would 
Yeah, definitely. And and I think to um, big events, not always, but big events perhaps get more um, uh, outside external help is more likely to come. Not always, but I mean, we um, <laughs> one thing we always used to joke about. So in trauma care, we always talk about the golden hour. You know, you've got that time from when someone's injured to where you want to get everything in and your life-saving maneuvers. This is talking about a one person. And in Australia, we use the term the bronze 12 hours because often in rural and remote areas, there just are those logistics. And if you have six people injured and you're, say, in, um, in remote town A, and remote town B has uh, two um, but more severely injured people, then there is a priority system and, and you know there is a limitations to what can happen so I think understanding those and understanding you may have to care for people longer than expected um, a lot of the uh, planning that you see assumes that everything um, can go straight to a major hospital who can accept them um, and I think COVID I mean I'm just talking on the top of my feet here but I you know I remember there were times there when COVID was really causing problems in the UK and they actually put out a warning saying be really really careful because right now if you have a car accident to be honest our hospital is full our ITU or ICU is full so so, you know, there are full systems things that you perhaps don't want to spend time losing sleep over. But, you know, you, you certainly want to be aware that you're working within a system and sometimes there are unexpected um, happenings. But I think good risk assessment planning for the likely. So like oil and gas, as I said, here are our likely events. Um, knowing what's the possible but less likely, you know, earthquake, that sort of thing. Um, and then thinking about, well, what would I do in that situation? Having some flexibility in the plans, I think, is always a good idea. Yeah, I think you picked on a really good point, flexibility in the plan. Um, I remember I was talking to a colleague who was uh, the medic on the when the G4S complex in Afghanistan got bombed by the Taliban. Uh, and that was when the Taliban, the Taliban basically put a 400 pound bomb in. A few Taliban operators ran in, lobbing grenades everywhere. And when I was talking to Chris, the medic, who was the only medic, um, one of his most interesting points about any assessment is to make an assessment of what you do when your plan fails. So yeah. when it all doesn't go to plan, what's going to happen? Because what he said on that night was that basically every route to his three uh, areas where he had set up medical kit was all blocked and he said nothing worked for a long period of time and one of the thing, interesting things I learned from that uh, and picking out what you were saying is um, how, how do you plan when it doesn't you know when when, hel when your helicopter's not coming for 12 hours uh, sometimes yeah. what I picked up from Chris and, and a point I've always brought into to my planning now is trying to plan to fail so what what do you do when yeah. it's not working and it's a different mindset because we always win don't we at, at the end of the day <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I thought that was a really good point Chris brought out that night was you should look at what you would do if your plan is failing because in remote locations it can fail at multiple stages can't it that would set I think that's just the nature of the business we're in at times um, yeah. So, so yeah I think that's interesting to have that flexibility have plan plan b plan c and the other plan <laughs> when the plan's yeah. not working <laughs> yeah so there's yeah. definitely adaptability in, in, in everything we're doing here no I, I think that that's uh, that, that's a, a really good way to, to, to answer that um, just 
from your experience, Robina, and it's it's been really interesting learning about the, the different stages you've gone through as you've got more and more into disaster response and, and multiple casualties. Uh, is there any specific stories you can bring out from maybe an event that you've been to that you learn from? Because I think stories are always a good way to learn and, and bring out your own experience. Anything in, in particular? Yeah, look, I mean, maybe it's a sort of collated story experience. I mean, I certainly remember as a young sort of emergency doctor and being sort of all hyped up and knowing all my books and feeling like I knew how to do things and I could, you know, uh, be ready off the cuff. There was that feeling that you could adapt um, and um, there was less of that preparation focus. So I think as I've got older, the, the more I sort of say, don't, don't assume, don't assume that everyone um, where you are or in your current situation has a full understanding, knowledge, competence and training um, in things like mass casualties. So I think you've got to have a system. Um, you've got to recognise that doing something like a desktop, I think reflecting what you were saying, Colin, that I think all of us can be really calm and collected, know exactly what we're doing. We're standing around a desktop scenario and say, oh, well, there's 10 people and we would do this and we would do that. And it's very different when you're actually dealing with real situation and there's all the actual real factors that come in. Um, I think, the, and again, I think the training, the, the benefit of training, and I, you know, and this is true of um, the systems of the uh, clinical care, so things like the ATLS EMST system, as well as the, the triage system, I think not only do they bring together neatly what actually needs to be done, but they actually really provide an inner calm. I mean, these are very uh, potentially emotionally challenging situations. There are injured people. They, they tend to be very noisy. You tend to have at least some people who are not trained and therefore might be very emotional about what's going on. Um, and I think it's actually that having that sense of training embedded in everyone and practice regularly is just such it's a personal protection I think for the people involved in the situation because they know what to do they can come back to their internal short checklist of what they should be doing and like continue revert to that and just um, you know continue to go on and um, I think uh, again reflecting on what you're saying is the learning from what you know what I would say is like an adrenaline adrenaline and sweat type experience is still very valuable because again when we're all casual and someone's pretending to be the incident victim and we're calmly moving them from A to B it's really different when you've got someone who's actually screaming or simulated screaming hopefully um, so so you actually want to put yourself in a slight pressure cooker situation so I'm not sure that I answered your question exactly but when I look on perhaps my approach as a younger clinician to what I think people need to do now to work well for their own protection as well as the, the better outcome. I just think it's that kind of practice, 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 know your system and know that skills uh, perish and people move on. You know, I think we all work in environments where we get turnover. So a great training practice 12 months ago, you may have no, one or no one left from that when the situation happens again in two or three years. Yeah, and I think you're right. I, I think understanding that there's the potential of decoration of skills, because this generally isn't something that happens every day. If it is happening every day, you're probably in a bad place. <laughs> so, but it, it is by the nature of it, it doesn't happen every day. So I think understanding that your skills may be degrading is important. What, yep. One thing I picked up from, from your answer there, which, which I thought was really interesting, was using the word calmness and calm. Uh, because that follows your preparation. That, that's been really interesting. Um, one point that's come out through a lot of the podcasts we've been doing, and we've interviewed uh, seriously injured patients, 
people who have been to, to multiple, multiple incidents, um, pediatric consultants dealing with seriously injured children. And I often ask them what they believe is the most important thing they can bring to the event. Um, and what they say is calmness and confidence in front of the patients. Uh, and the patient also says that back, that they want to feel the person in, that, that's caring for them is in control. Underneath it all, it might be a little bit hectic, but <laughs> I, I think what I got from that is if your preparation can put you on the ground where outwardly you look in control and you look calm, you can't underestimate how that important, overestimate how important that actually is. I think it's because it, it's something that's consistently coming out from you know, from people with multiple experiences in these areas, but also patients seriously injured are telling us this is what we wanted to see. So I think that that, that was something I've learned a lot from doing multiple in, multiple of the TSG talks. But I think it's something you've just brought out there saying, if you can get your preparation right, it will produce a level of calm on you. And we can't underestimate that. So yeah, that, that, that was yeah. it. That, that was fantastically interesting. Yeah, just, just, I um, once had an emergency physician when I was training who, who said something that I always remember, which was, be like a duck. You look like you're mm. coasting calmly across yeah. the world. Meanwhile, you're paddling yeah. furiously underneath. But what, yeah. what matters is that you, you've got purpose, you know where you're going, yeah. and yes, you're working hard. Yeah, um, yeah I fully agree in my experience that, yeah. No, I think I think that that's such such a big thing to, to, to remember. So so just moving on from that, we've picked up a lot of the, the sort of the importance of preparation. But if you were to um, maybe talk to one of your medics coming through that that could be working for you, and 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 you were to say, look, I need you to get start preparing yourself. Should you have to respond to multiple casualties? Is there any specific skills you would ask them to look towards to 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 help the preparation at all? Any any particular areas you, you would like them to focus on? Yeah, look, I mean, and and, and I think so, you know, you know, mass casualty, particularly in an environment where there's limited medic, there's the non-health trained people. So they, you know, would be considered separately and they still are very useful. Um, but I think for a medic, because people are going to look to you to do the life-saving manoeuvres, you want to be pretty confident in those. So to me, the one, I mean, most people would have a, a fair... Uh, we wouldn't forget how to stop bleeding. That's thankfully fairly, <laughs> fairly straightforward, fairly simple. Normally just apply pressure or maybe, you know, maybe pull the femur back in line and apply pressure. Um, so stop the bleeding as usual. But I think those airway skills, um, you know, as everyone who's clinical will know, it's Dr. ABC and that's in order of the things that can kill people. So making sure that you're um, confident with how to do just air opening manoeuvres, no equipment needed and slash the more, um, you know, interventional things like putting in Goodell's, et cetera. Um, when we look at things like mass tria, uh, mass casualty, you're probably not really going to be in that intubating straight away. But certainly when you're, those are skills that really do save lives. And I would uh, say for the health professional, who is the sort of escalation point for the most unwell people, I think airway skills are probably the thing that you want to maintain. Uh, again, uh, we work in environments where most people are breathing quite well for themselves and we don't have to do these regularly and they are perishable skills. So I think making sure that you're getting time off site to go and do some clinical skills, maybe even go and do theatre lists and things like that and assist and, and practice with your, um, your airway skills. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think maintaining those uh, and the, the knowledge of what you have, that's, that's the other thing that's really important. What well, what's your thoughts on, um, because I've often found when, when I was working remotely, I was the only medical resource for for, for, for many miles around me. And yep. 
what, what I always looked to do was try and work out who could help me, you know, who, who would be my team and, yep. and um, should I be outnumbered or should I have a complex resuscitation to carry out? And I just yep. didn't, I don't have, I only had my two hands. Um, yep. Any thoughts on what your medics need to think about, about training local providers to help them? Any, any experience with your own medics, what, what you would like them yeah, to do? Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, in almost every situation that I've been in, there's nearly always what you'd call a stretched team. So even in, um, you know, a hospital system, the people carrying stretchers are normally uh, the wardsmen who, who may come in with, they're not health professionals, but they are often very uh, willing and able and, and uh, keen to be trained. So teaching your, um, your support teams like that and giving them the skill set that they need to do their job well. So if you need people to help you move people from A to B, which nearly always you do, having them train and having them know simple things like neck needs to be still. We need that pattern and then we need to look like this. We need to, you know, simple things like that. I think definitely uh, remote site work, knowing who other people are. So often in, in most uh, industrial sites, you'll have people who are first aiders. So they're the people who I'd first identify and perhaps try and upskill them. Are they confident with their CPR? Are they, can they do things that perhaps, again, are not complex and not like an, an advanced skill set, but really important in the midst of a situation? Uh, and do they know where things are? So when you're yelling out and saying, get me the this and get me the that, that, that you're using a term and you're pointing and you know where they are too, but they do as well to assist you in getting you the gear and the equipment that you have if you're the um, the only person, well, you're, you're the escalation point for, for interventions. Um, simple things like uh, if you've got a really complex uh, resuscitation and someone, this is more talking about a single person, um, squeezing a bag is actually not that complex a task. So if you've intubated someone and you've got them on a bag valve mask because you haven't got a ventilator or you haven't got there yet, you could almost get anyone there. You just tell them to be nice and calm, squeeze, count to six and squeeze because most people pump that thing at their heart rate. Um, again, these are just using anyone and most people want to help. I think that's the big thing is people want to help. Um, and so identifying and just using that really good communication, looking them in the eye, talk to them directly and say, I want you to do this. Repeat back to me. And then, you know, that way you do your close loop communication. And, you know, I think you could actually be very successful surrounded by people who aren't health professionals, but they know what you want them to do. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, what I'm getting from that is, uh, I suppose, understanding that this isn't their day job, that they're not the health professional, but be, be, having them competent in very simple tasks can probably make a big difference on the day. Um, and I suppose it's recognising who you've got and then recognising their capability to, to form the tasks that you want them to do, making sure we don't overstretch them going too technical but making sure the tasks they do, do they do, do they, they, they achieve, um, actually contribute to the, the success of our response, I suppose that's what I'm picking up from you on that one, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And and my experience is that I think a lot of people are usually actually quite, uh, you know, chuffed is the word I'd use, but they quite like to learn some extra, you know, skills, not like I'm going to land you with someone and you have to do X, all these things, but can I show you how to hold a bag? That would be really useful. You would be helping keeping the person alive. It, most people are quite proud to have that knowledge and skills as like a little extra without it being too demanding on their, their general sort of psyche. <laughs> yeah, and I think I, I can actually tell a story in this one, which I, I'm supposing quite proud of as well. And uh, 
when I was working in the North Sea out in the Fortress Field, um, we had the catering crew as first aiders. And, and, and what we basically said to them was that we will make sure we train you correctly and what, on the skills we think you can do. We'll make sure you've got the right equipment and you're also recognised as the, the first aid team, not just a bunch of people that turn up at the sick bay. And uh, they really, what I noticed was that team really came together. And the, I suppose the, the, the crowning glory of it was two of them went off and joined the ambulance service um which was absolutely fantastic but i think what that showed me is if you you can take people with no medical skills and you're right the most the vast majority of people want to help and if you equip them correctly and you you spend time and invest in them then i think you do get a lot of rewards from it and and they get it back as well it's a it is a closed loop isn't it um Mm. and but i was i was very it was interesting watching that team develop um and it definitely wasn't all my work my back to back at the time put a huge amount of effort into the team but you could really see them grow into the task which mm-hmm. which which was, was quite rewarding but yes when two of them joined the ambulance service we we were very happy as a medic team so uh, that is a nice it's a nice story to tell yeah um, uh, but just um just looking at the wider teams as well and um it's it's probably something i've come across but what, what do you think um, when the medics may be putting the plan in place, What, how much information do they need to tell the management about what's going on? Because I've often found that's quite an important link, that the manager needs to understand our language and, and what we actually need. Have you come across anything there that you think they could focus on or, or could help them when they maybe have to go to management? Yeah, look, I mean, I would say it is a tendency to be a, bit, a gap in most organisations because people go, we should have an emergency response uh, and they say, yes, we'll do this, and then they tick a box and believe, okay, it's being done. And I think like any um, any action that you're taking, particularly when you're midst of an emergency, if it's not really embedded in your discussions, if it's not practised right through to all the people who are going to be part of the emergency response team for that site, so that will nearly always be senior management um, of whatever industry you're talking about, they will have a, an important role. So they need to understand what you're doing and the approach. Um, I mean, certainly, as, as you're aware, with Cedral, this is part of what we've looked at um, and very much um, the training we are going to take right through. So there is the medics are going to be uh, do a train-the-trainer. They're going to train the uh, first aider slash um, stretcher team. Um, we are then going to also get the um, the site management, so the, uh, the emergency response team who would be there on the operation with them also to do just once so they're aware of the language what the terminology means etc then we're actually going to get our on-site incident management team who are the onshore local office country support and we're going to take it right through to the the top level um, crisis management team the people who sort of sit in head office who are saying what's going on I think understanding the language the knowledge the system not to an expert level, but just to be familiar with it. Um, in when you're dealing with a real crisis, this is not the easiest time to learn. You know, it's yeah, yeah. far better than everyone. And again, I think people actually like knowing and sort of feeling prepped and like they've got a skill set. Um, so yeah, I, I would think, and then that's sort of why we built that in. I would think for a lot of organizations, if you went up to their exco, okay, borders, you don't have to worry about it. If you went to their exco and said, what would, would you understand of a mass casualty and how it's managed? Now, they don't need to be expert. That's not their role. Um, but I would imagine a lot of them would say not a lot. 
unless they came from a particular background. Um, and so, yeah, I think having that common language is very important. Yeah, that, that's something I, I, and I'll and i totally agree with you now. I think if you were to quit some of the boards and, and even middle management, they, I've often found um, in the general industry, there's the understanding that the medic will respond and, and all will be well. Um, mm-hmm. But if they don't understand, if I say I have a priority one, what what, what do I want them to do with that piece of information? Because yep. it's going to require a certain level of uh, urgency, a certain level of resources. And I can't tell you exactly what this. I just need to know that you've got that piece of information and you're fixing it for me. And, and I think that's the sort of sort of connection level they need to have. If we tell them a piece of information, what does that equal from uh, making a decision? Then, then requesting a resource with, with somebody who's got the authority to do it so we don't waste time. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, I've often found that when we're, we're pulling the teams together, we've obviously got our first responders we're looking at, but I think the other part of the team is the management who's trying to get all the resources to to, to minimise that time from point of injury to, to definitive care. So uh, probably quite a big bit for the medic to think about and how they would communicate and train management to understand what they're doing. It's it's an interesting one, and often one, I think it's one I see missed more often than not, um, but probably worth mentioning, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and perhaps it's, it's a little easier in my situation because we've come top down, but um, yeah. I, I think certainly my advice would be if you're a medic and you came to a situation and, and you could always just be speaking at least to your next report saying, look, does anyone else know this? And maybe even act as that train the trainer. I could do a session. I could put together a safety talk on it. I could uh, do a little one pager that would uh, make sense for, you know, something big happened, who else would be involved? Maybe even understanding that within your organisation that you look after, where does this go? Um, Because in almost all industries that I can think of, when something big is happening, you know, when I talk about those major accident hazards, They, we, we talk about the pair model, which people do know, you know, it's people, environment, assets and reputation. They're the things that get injured and they're the ones you address in order of preference so people come first. But, um, a, you know, even the, the people at the very, very top of an organisation will normally want to know what is going on. You know, they'll, they'll, what, they'll be involved at some level. Um, and so I think if you come on as a medic in a site, even if it's a big organisation, you could just make the inquiries. Where does this flow through to? And what can I do, at least locally, um, to educate, get people understanding what I'm doing uh, I think particularly for mass casualty triage, um, I have had the clinical experience of um, dealing with someone who was there and they actually had a limb amputation because of the uh, injuries that had arisen, but they were walking. So, I mean, it was actually horrific looking, uh, but they were walking, talking, et cetera. So there were more injured people, but other people were like, how can you ignore that person? And you just had to explain the model is, Everyone needs to be assessed. I can see they're walking. The person not moving is the one I've got to go and look at. So, again, just having people understand it's a different mindset. You're not being negligent. There is actually a method behind what may look like madness to a non-trained person. So having them with that understanding, again, really, really does help. And You know, that's a really interesting point you picked out on, on the triage side is, when you're actually doing triage on the ground, the uninjured person will question what you're doing. Um, and, and part of triage, successful triage, is being, is being able to answer that correctly so, so that uninjured person doesn't become a block. Um, and there's various 
um, occurrences in, in multiple instances where because we haven't answered that question, why are you moving away from this person? It, it's triage stops with, with conflict. Um, so it's actually a really important point to bring out. How do we answer that question that we're going through a task which may seem illogical, um, uh, but we have to explain the logic for it without wasting too much time before we get to the next person or creating conflict with the uninjured person because they, they want us to go somewhere else because they believe we should be caring somewhere else. It's, it's yeah. a real problem and, and needs thinking about and practicing. Um, yeah. if, if not, as you say, the, the, well, the, the well laid out plan starts to stop. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah. yeah it's, it's a very interesting one. No, that's, yeah. that, there's some fantastic points coming out. So just, just looking to summarise a little bit about what we've talked today, would there be any, what would be the three main points that you would say that are important when people think about multiple casualties in, in remote locations? What would be your big three that you'd say these are the really important ones. Yeah, and uh, I'd have to say, of course, this is pure opinion. Okay. That's, <laughs> no. that's why we're on the TC talk. <laughs> Number one resources check. Uh, literally to this day, whenever I walk into a workplace where I have responsibilities, whether I'm walking into an onshore office or whether I'm walking into a remote site, I go and have a look at the emergency trolley, <laughs> the DFib, um, but it's knowing what are the resources. So, you know, when we talk mass casualty, it's what kit do we have? Uh, what's our stock? Who's around, etc. Um, number two, I would say is asking, is there actually a mass casualty plan? And even though uh, obviously we're converts, um, you know, the world is a growing place. Uh, there is a lot of competing interests and it's entirely possible that there isn't a plan or maybe it's a very old plan. Uh, it might be, you know, a dusty folder from five years ago. Um, so maybe having a look at what, what's been done and is that still current and relevant um, and number three, particularly with mass casualty, is just drills, drill participation. And, and you know, if, if your work site says we've got a mass casualty plan, when was the last drill? If it's not being done regularly, people will have forgotten. Uh, like I said, turnover of, of, of positions, um, uh, just natural tendency for memory to fade, um, you know, and unless things are really concrete, like, you know, we've got a green walking wounded triage area painted green and we all know that's what it's for, then people do forget these things. Um, and, you know, one thing I think we are now seeing is that I think a lot of industry drills but do you assess performance? Because sometimes there's that, um, and I'm guilty as charged, that everyone sort of gets in there and they're mucking in and, and, and they do a great, and then everyone's sweating and they're full of adrenaline. We all go, well, that was great. Um, but, but we're not really referencing that to actual quality criteria. And, and I think like anything, if you want to be really good at something, you've actually got to assess your performance. So, um, again, if you go to a site and you, your trolley's looking wonderful and you've got all your kits and you're drilling regularly and everything great, what are your targets? What do you think good looks like? And are you meeting good? Um, and I think that last piece is, is something that we've sort of only uh, just really started to put into place now is a, an assessment performance of drills. Um, and I think, dare I say, that's again, like probably in the next barrier for a lot of workplaces is to start actually assessing, not just saying I've done it, tick, it went well. We all got excited, stuff happened. Yeah, that, that, I think that's so important, isn't it? I, again, likewise, I 100% agree with what you're saying there. I've often seen 
it, not just an industry, but emergency services, military, where you get the all singing, all dancing drill with whizzes and bangs, and everybody says, worked hard, well done. But I rarely see that objective assessment of what did we achieve. Um, mm. And I think that's a very interesting area to look at. And uh, there's probably a few papers to be written on that one, I think, about what it is we're trying to achieve and, and how do we assess it? You know, we ran the exercise, we did this, but what, what were the outcomes? Um, yeah. What, yeah, what was the lessons learned? I mean, yeah. I can't yeah. imagine, well, certainly none of the scenarios I've ever been personally involved with, both mock and real, would you say, oh, we did absolutely everything right, it was spot on and everyone, you know, there's always something to learn or like a new barrier or a factor you hadn't considered, like the lab is closed and the guy's on, you know, there's always something you can learn. So I think if you're not using these as learning experiences, you're missing out, you're missing out on really getting somewhere. No, I think that's, and you're right there, the exercise is there to, to make mistakes. This is the time to make mistakes, isn't it? We shouldn't be scared yeah. of making mistakes. Yeah. Um, shouldn't be scared of putting our hands up to say, this is not working. Can, yeah. can we look again and find a better way? And it, I think it's having that culture to, yeah. to allow you to make the mistake, but having the assessment process that can say, this is not right. So we just yeah. don't continually drop into bad habits. Um, yeah. yeah, so no, I think that that's uh, trying to understand what is the outcome of an exercise and how can we can measure that. And yeah. I don't think we'll ever get it perfect, but do we have a model for measurement? We, we'd really improve how we go about things at, at various stages of our preparation and application of, of, of what we're doing. Oh, it's yeah. absolutely fascinating. Uh, so we'll just come off this, this subject for a little bit for a final question, which is something we always ask everybody. And uh, we, we, we've never had the same answer twice on this one. But if you were, regardless of where you were deploying in the world, if you were to always, if you would, if there was one piece of medical kit you would always take with you, what, 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 what would it be? And uh, as you know, I looked at these questions that looked before this. And, um, I, I came down to, well, I'll tell you my thinking. I used to know someone who always traveled with a scalpel because he was always ready to do a cricothyroidotomy. But in reality, I don't think airport security would allow it these days. <laughs> so that's off the list. I think I did for a while because I was very heavily influenced. And then after a while, I thought, I don't know that I'd back myself just to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I would have to say... I still think the best equipment you have is your knowledge in your hands. So okay. I'm, gonna, I'm always going to come out on that because, I mean, I was thinking, oh, like a Goodell. And then I thought, but do I actually travel with a Goodell in my bag? No, I don't. <laughs> so I didn't want to be disingenuous. So I think what I'd like to do is say it's less about my medical equipment but updating my medical skills. So now I'm in a less clinical role. I still make sure that I go do my BLS, ACLS uh, on a regular basis. Um, and if I really had to be pinned to a piece of equipment, I'd say I have a bandage. And by that, I mean, I could probably get a bit of cloth and rip it open and, and I could take the military approach to the CABC, <laughs> you know, um, uh, look after the, the bleeding first. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I would always like to perhaps say to people, you'd be surprised at a lot of life-saving manoeuvres you can do without a bit of kit. You know, that's a really good answer, knowledge and hands. Um, and I think that's, um, if I was to think about what I would take, uh, my problem always working remotely was access and knowledge uh, and trying to validate your decision. So um, being able to act, whether it's the, the your best clinical assessment group or whatever it is, being able to access that knowledge is such a good answer isn't it but you're making sure you <laughs> i don't know i don't know yeah, no, I, I i really like that answer and uh 
I have not said what my piece of medkit is yet on TSG Talk because I'm not quite <laughs> sure what it is. <laughs> um, I've got a couple of things I think well, would have win. It's quite a difficult question. Um, but I do like the, 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 the idea that you've brought out is that it's knowledge is probably one of the most important things you can take with you or maybe access to knowledge as well to expand that a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, confidence that you can do it, confidence in the skills mm, that you go like, mm, I know how to open an airway. I know yeah. how to put someone in a recovery position. I know how to do CPR. Mm-hmm. You know, these are all the things uh, I know what I need to call for. You know, these are, you know, in reality. And yeah, as I said, I was trying to be um, very, um, True. When when I lived in Africa, I actually did have my own jump bag with a bag valve mask, and I, <laughs> I had everything in there, you know, uh, laryngoscope, and I was all hot to trot. But um, uh, but now now I'm I'm living in the UK. I that is not current. I I haven't. I sort of got rid of all the stuff when it expired. So um, yeah, I was trying to be true to the question. What no, do no, I what do I, I actually travel with? And it's <laughs> through my hands and my yeah. skills. No, I, I think that, that's an absolutely fantastic answer. Absolutely. So so just um to to, to for me to try and summarize what, what I, I think I've picked up from from our conversation this afternoon was multiple casualties in different locations can produce different things. And I think it's important if people are deploying is that probably one of the first things they have to do or even before they go out is that they apply a good risk assessment. So they've got a good handle on what the the scenario is most likely going to be that they could deal with. Um, Preparation is going to be such a big part of this job. And then developing the plan that has a huge amount of flexibility and has the if it doesn't quite work, then there's, there's options off that plan. It's a big thing I'm picking up from, from, our, from our conversation. And uh, the other big area was um, making sure your basic skills are very, very good. Um, yeah. You know, yes, there may be some complex stuff we need to do, but being able to apply the basics consistently at a very high level would, would seem a very important part of, of what we, we need to be doing as medics in multiple casualty scenes work, working remotely. Um, and as I say, and if you want to give yourself the, the, the best chance of success, I think understanding who your team is, um, that you are part of the team, but you can't do this yourself. You, you yeah. need front end helpers, your, your first aid teams and what's their capabilities. But then you need to also have your management team singing off the same song sheet, talking the same language, understanding your language and your yeah. requirements within the wider incident as well. I think that, that's a big thing I've picked up. Um, and prepare, it goes back to preparation and knowledge again. That seems to be the, yeah. the, the foundation of everything, isn't it? You know, yeah. do your reading, get your knowledge up to speed, up yeah. to speed, get your basics right. And you probably, will it ever go perfect? Probably not. But if you do that right, you, you're on a solid base for the signs of it, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, drill, drill, drill. I think that's, yeah. you know, practice makes perfect. And, yeah. and the more you do the more it's it's automatic and you don't have to think mm. in an emergency it yeah. just will come to you and and I think you know reflecting on uh you know far more experienced than myself people who I've seen acting in um um you know very quite serious clinical things they look so calm because they just they understand what they need to do and they understand you know I can influence this situation best by doing this boom, 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 boom. and um yeah that's where I think the drills, regular drills, um, and learning from them is, is a kind of like the capstone of keeping it all together. Yeah, you're right. And if I was to expand at all on that, and I think you just picked it up there is practice, 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 but with assessment and validation. 
um, to, to what if you're practicing what's my mistakes how do I validate if it was right how do I know it was right and having that closed closed loop on it which you think is important no Rubina look that's there's some wonderful pieces of knowledge there we've, we've I think we've managed to bring out which I'm sure will be of immense help to one people who are already deployed and, and just need to recap on what they're doing and people who might be going in, in, into the industry and have know that they may have to face this and it's quite foreign to them and then they, they want to just get a handle on what they're dealing with. I think we've covered some some wonderful points. So so thank you so much for tonight, Rubina. I really do appreciate the time you've given us the, this afternoon. And um, if you would like to ask any questions on this podcast, we'll put a link on a link onto our LinkedIn page, which is TSG Associates. And uh, we'll also have uh, various links on our website as well. So I'd just like to thank everybody for listening tonight. Uh, we'll be back uh, soon again with another unique subject and a unique colleague. Um, so everybody take care and we will talk to you very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of TSG Talk. We hope you found the content of benefit. Should you have any questions or require additional information, please visit tsgassociates.co.uk.